0: Welcome to Post-Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd, and in this episode that was recorded back in September of 2019, long, long before the coronavirus era, I'm now recording this intro and we will be posting this in late March of 2020, and so we're living in a different world now. And yet, I think you're going to find this prophetic, heartful conversation with my dear colleague, Kevin Hester, to be just soul nourishing. So Kevin shares, Kevin and I both share a love of Jacques Cousteau and early influence. He also shares other influences, such as Rachel Carson and Paul Ehrlich and others. His experience with Guy and his love and respect of Guy McPherson. They co-host Nature Bats Last, uh, which is an amazing podcast. And Kevin's writings can be found at kevinhester.live. And so one of the things that we'll talk about is the difference between thinking that we can fix things and living in a world where we understand predicaments and we accept the inevitable and yet do whatever we need to do to be a stand for young people and for the future, no matter what the future entails. And so in these uncertain times, I think you're gonna find Kevin Hester to be a, a, a faithful trail guide. So enjoy. So love for you to just take a few minutes and share what you're, you know, a little help us get you, help anybody that's not familiar with you and your work, help us to to get you, uh, and uh, particularly what you're passionate about or concerned about these days.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I suppose. To a large extent, my journey in uh, environmentalism started with Jacques Cousteau. Uh, I watched Jacques Cousteau as a small boy and I watched him on the Calypso traveling around these beautiful places, developing the ability to scuba dive and investigating all of the wonders underneath the ocean. And how, how, I became,
0: how, old, how old are you? When, when was that?
1: I'm 59. So that would okay. be close to 50 years ago when I first heard about Jacques Cousteau I would have thought yeah and I just wanted to be that guy I wanted to go and do what Jacques Cousteau was doing hmm. and I did as <laughs> as a, a schoolboy I was very small and um, I wasn't competitive in most sports with my peer groups because they were all bigger stronger faster uh, not as angry but That was the only thing I had going in my favour at the time, (laughs) and then when I was fourteen, I went on a school camp and we got taught how to sail laser boats, small sailing yacht, and it was the first time I ever won anything at sport. (laughs) I had to wait till I was fourteen to I won an event.
0: Oh, that's great!
1: And I thought I can do something. You know, there's nothing like a, a victory to give you confidence to be able to do something. So I. I pursued a, a sailing career, and I got it to the point where I did 16 ocean passages on small yachts. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but the best part of it, and well, not the best part, but one of the great parts of that story was people used to pay me to go and do it. I couldn't keep a straight face when I was taking the check. <laughs> they could have sent me an invoice, not a check.
0: Wow. Well, I, and I understand because one of our early uh, email exchanges, you mentioned that Dar Jamel, when he was booking, working on his book, The End of Ice, you sent me some photos of you and him uh, doing some scuba diving.
1: Yeah, we dived the Poor Knights Marine Reserve, which is about 100 miles north of where I live. And um, it's a supervolcano. So the islands that you dive around are actually the broken peaks of the top of the volcano out of the bottom of the ocean. It's an extraordinary piece of uh, uh, terrain. So yeah, Dai and I got to do that together and uh, had a wonderful time. Travelled around the country a little bit doing some research. It was wonderful.
0: Well, that's great. Well, um, I too was deeply inspired by Jacques Cousteau. and since really the the heart of this particular conversation series is around people, you know, not so much their teaching shtick, you know, sort of the talking points that they like to deliver to audiences, but more personally, how did you come to <sighs> an awareness of a declining future. I mean, we, we, you know, you and I are only a year apart. I'm 60. And, you know, those of us that were born and, and lived in the 1950s and 60s and 70s had an expectation of perpetual progress, a, a sense that things were getting better. I mean, this is sort of the, 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 the water we swam in. Uh, how did you go from that to realizing, wow, things are very different and, and share, take as much time as you want on that story uh, and also any particular episodes Um, in your, you know, decades where you were particularly impacted grief or anger or whatever?
1: In the um, late 70s and early 80s, when I was a teenager at first, and then into my early 20s, I was involved in the anti-nuclear movement in New Zealand. And we were trying to stop the French nuclear testing, first atmospheric testing and then underground testing. (laughs) We know... We we fought, we campaigned against the atmospheric testing, and we drove them underground, which, which you know, it's a it's a it's a funny juxtaposition. But they went underground and did just as much damage out of sight as they did when they were in the atmosphere. Yeah. And then, of course, um, in two thousand and eleven, Fukushima Daiichi um, exploded, and we had the triple meltdowns and um, three coriums ex, uh, escaping primary and secondary containment. So the, my absolute worst fears came to fruition. But also what I noticed contemporaneously with, that, with my ocean sailing, I watched the disappearance of the flying fish. And, you know, when you're a sailor and you're on the top of the surface, you don't really see a hell of a lot of what's going on underneath. Yeah. But what I had noticed is when I was first sailing around um, out of New Zealand up to the Pacific Islands, which is where most of my sailing was done from here to there or back. I watched the the sea, the uh, flying fish disappear, and that was just a huge alarm bell for me. And then around that time, I got because of Fukushima Daiichi, I got much more involved and engrossed. And that path led me to understanding that the entire biosphere is in danger, not just any one part of it. And you know, when you when you dive down into this, you realize how interconnected everything is and that you can't keep chipping away at foundation stones of anything without expecting it to eventually collapse and fall over. Yes. Yes.
0: I'm wondering who are, who are some of the teachers, mentors, who are the people that you um, over the years have read or watched um, that have been particularly foundational for you or helpful?
1: Well, um, Silent Spring, I suppose, would be a book that I, I read when I was um, a young fella and that echoed in the background, And you know, the lack of echo echoed in the background, where more and more I became aware. So definitely that book was formative for me. And like I said before, Jacques Cousteau. Mm-hmm. And then around, the, around 2011, when I first heard well, you know, when Fukushima um, fell over and, and around the same time I had an accident that ended my um, sailing career, I damaged my hands, can't oh, wow. sail offshore anymore. So that gave me more time to concentrate, look online and see what was going down. And I first heard about Guy McPherson's work around that time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I spent about a year or 18 months trying to prove him wrong.
0: <laughs> yes, as many of us did.
1: Yeah. 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 I had no desire whatsoever to sign on for um, Guy's hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I resisted it just like everybody else. I had negative feelings towards him just like everyone else. And then more and more and more, it became apparent that Guy has nailed it. That was one of the first people on the planet to join the dots or connect the dots and see how dire our situation really is. And then he came... I, you know, I, I found him on social media and I got to interact with him. And then um, we were talking one time, he was doing a tour and, to go to Europe. And I said to him on, online, oh, why don't you come to New Zealand? And he said, make it happen. <laughs> I like a challenge. So yeah. I made it happen. And we've become very, very firm, close friends because I see what he has to go through to being the first person to yeah. put his head above the parapet and, and say what's going down. Because so many of us have always been involved in fixing things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For me, it was always about fixing things. I was obsessed about how I was gonna, on my single-handedly, or well, with the help of my friends in Greenpeace and different organizations, we were gonna pull down the nuclear um, industry. Mm-hmm. Well, you can see that's been a spectacular failure. <laughs> Yes: So yeah, Guy came into my life personally then, and we, um, we toured in two, 2014 around the country to you know public meetings everywhere, and then we did that again in 2016. And then just recently, Pauline and Guy, Pauline's Guy's partner, the two of them came to New Zealand just to visit. We weren't. Mm-hmm. They weren't coming to tour. They just were so generous that they came to visit me, and we called it the Last Waltz."
0: Uh, there are a wide variety of people that are going to be listening to or perhaps watching these conversations. And a lot of the old timers, of course, have heard of Guy and have, you know, their own opinions and whatever. Um, uh, But his Nature Bats, y'all's Nature Bats last podcast, say something about that.
1: What it's enabled me to do is have conversations with some spectacularly formative people. You, you, You asked earlier on, you know, what, what people or what books were formative in my life? And when I was eight years old, Anne and Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called *The Population Bomb* in 1968. You know, this man was connecting the dots when I was a babe. Yes. And um, since we've, I've been co-hosting on the show. I've had, I've had the um, privilege of being able to. Um, Interview Paul three times, yeah, and that's extraordinary for me yeah, to sure. have someone like him who's prepared to give give me his time. And then recently, um, Guy and I interviewed um, Nick Humphreys, who's a um, a wonderful meteorologist in the United States, a young guy with a PhD who understands the significance of how all of these interconnected things work and the danger that we're in. And then in our last episode of NBL, we interviewed uh, a doctor, uh, Andrew Glickson, from the Australian National University. And he, like Guy, is an expert in, in previous extinctions. Mm-hmm. And one of the most chilling things that Andrew said in this episode was, there is no analogue, I'm not quoting him, I'm paraphrasing him, Sure. there's no analogue for the rapidity of this extinction event and the, and the, the rate of change that we are seeing. He's written a number of uh, articles for Global Research, a um, pretty well-known w- website. At, um, I think it's based in the US, but doesn't really matter in these, this day. So he's, his re- recent article that I wanted to talk to him about in the interview was about tipping points that we've created in the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. And I think tipping points are a really important issue that we need to talk about because Years and years ago, all the big NGOs used to talk about the danger of crossing tipping points. Right. Now that we've crossed a multitude of them, <laughs> they don't want to talk about
0: it. Well, you can hardly blame them. Once something's, once the, uh, uh, once the self-reinforcing patterns that are truly out of our control, once you become aware of them, then you just sort of focus your attention on other things because there's not a damn thing we can do about some of that stuff.
1: Yeah, but my my I take issue with the not talking about it. I think we have an obligation to the youth to tell the truth. Yes, yes. It's really important. If your house was on fire, would you want me to walk by and shut the fuck up or would you like me to bang <laughs> on your bedroom window and yes. wake you up? Exactly. And I really think that we have a very strong moral obligation. A, we have it to the youth. Mm-hmm. B, we have it to Gaia generally to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and also, it, what I do is a mere culpa to all the other species and the youth whose futures we've stolen from them. My generation have failed, we've mm-hmm. failed miserably. The big NGOs have failed miserably and i think that's got a lot to do with the corporate culture that has been introduced to a lot of those organizations
0: well i completely agree on all that i just think it goes a little bit deeper i think that we're looking at 7000 rough you know more or less 7000 years of human centered measures of well-being and progress and the kind of anthropocentric view that sees that land belongs to us rather than we belong to the land is the fundamental shift that's the essence of sustainability so i i'm a little less brutal on my generation of baby boomers or those of us that have been alive in the last 100 150 years i tend to agree with william catton in his book masterful in his masterful book overshoot that we're probably doing what any tool using symbolic speech facilitating uh animal would do and yet that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility as you say as you just said to tell the truth to be there in an intergener- in a way that stands with young people and not just stands with them as if giving them the impression that we can avoid the shit that's coming but that that we recognize that we have not done all that we could um and they're now going to inherit a uh profoundly uh degraded world if our species even survives at all which is there's a very very good chance that we don't survive more than another Decade, two decades, three decades, four decades, five decades. I often say that whether, whether we go extinct in five years or five million years, that's pretty short, even if we lasted, you know, even if there are say 50 pockets of humans that exist on this planet, say 20, 30, 40 years from now, um, once, you know, once the, the feedback loops have sort of done what they've done to destroy 98 to 99% of human population, Even if that's the case, even if there are little pockets that survive, they will mythologize the crash of this civilization to such a degree that um, you know, kind of like that scene in Avatar. This is the crater in our racial memory that we will never forget. But even if that's the case, we're still going to go extinct in you know the not too distant future from the universe's time stamp standpoint. So Uh, I
1: there was a famous quote from Carl Sagan that said that um, extinction is the rule, survival is the exception.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And when, and I just yesterday had an email communication with DJ White, who has done more to um, uh, facilitate the ongoing survival of cetaceans, uh, dolphins, whales, and that sort of thing. And the true tragedy from his vantage point, and I agree, is not just human extinction, but the extinction of these other intelligent social amazing creatures that, um, that it it will be a long time before earth um, recovers that. So it's, you know, Connie, my wife is all about assisting trees and migrating, whether humans survive or not, we can still do, do things that, that increase the likelihood of other species plant and animal uh, making it through this bottleneck.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's our moral obligation to do whatever we can. Yes, yes. I, I, I volunteer at a not-for-profit nursery on the island where we, where we propagate native trees. And I believe that all the forests on this planet are going to immolate in the not-too-distant future as things run away, because I believe we're in runaway, early-stage runaway. Yeah. But someone has to be the last person to plant a tree. Why wouldn't you do it? It's my final act of rebellion. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it's also—I mean, you say that, and I, and I agree, and I—I'm I, sure that's true for you. But it's also a fine act of love. You wouldn't be doing it if there weren't a, a sense of caring for that which is beyond you, or defining your sense of self as more than you, and and being in service on that behalf.
1: Oh, there's no question. It's a, it, um planting a tree and watching it grow is an extraordinarily rewarding experience. And what? what we're noticing on the island is we are probably one of the only places in the world where the bird song is going up every month. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We have more and more birds every year since I've been living, I've had this um, house on this island for 17 years. And the, the amount of bird song has gone through the roof as a result of planting trees. So we're yeah. having that absolutely tangible return. I get the joy of watching them all around, calling out, having their animated conversations with each other and arguments like some of them look like a lot to me
0: <laughs> that's uh, that's great because yeah I think that planting trees and building topsoil there's no more holy work on the planet so in terms of uh, in terms of the big picture, um, do you find well really what I'm asking deeper than that is what allows you or what facilitates or it supports you in waking up each day to do work that nourishes your soul and that makes whatever difference you can make at whatever scale you can make it, such as planting trees, what, what does that? Where, where do you find inspiration? Where do you find what nourishes you in these, in these uh, terribly challenging times?
1: I'm a first generation immigrant to this country. And my parents are very working class. I'm one of eight. So there was only enough enough money going around to feed us. And we got fed very well. And as a result of my parents immigrating to New Zealand, I've had an incredibly privileged life. And I'm white. I'm a white male. Another whole lot of privilege that, that, that comes with as my birthright. Mm -hmm. So I've had an extraordinary opportunity. I've had full employment all my life. I've been able to choose what jobs I wanted to do. You know, I, I worked as a professional sailor. You know, that's not a bad job. It wasn't down in a mine. Yes. Then I traveled to a lot of developing countries and I've seen poverty and I've smelt poverty. I've lived in two war zones. I lived in Belfast during the war and I lived in Mozambique during the war. I worked on a development project in Mozambique. I've seen horror and I've seen poverty beyond belief. So one of the reasons I do what I do is because it's an acknowledgement of my privilege. I have obligations to recognize that privilege and do something productive with it. Yes. I'm, I'm
0: the eldest son in a white Irish Catholic family And I feel like I've been given so much just by being born in those circumstances and that you use the word privilege, but also it's a privilege for me to now use that privilege. um, And that what has been gifted to me, uh, not because I earned it, but just because circumstances, life circumstances. And now I feel obligated. I feel responsible for um, making whatever difference that I can. Uh Connie and I have a very odd lifestyle. We travel nonstop, you know, we travel region by region and then speak in churches and colleges and that sort of thing. Um, but there is that sense of reciprocity, that sense of obligation, um, of of uh, uh, making a difference where I can. I have found the universe story. Or epic of evolution, inspiring a number of other people in this series have. Is that something that you've uh, paid attention to, uh, or um, you know, in terms of the whole sweep of evolutionary uh, and historical time?
1: Our oh, our, our radio show is based around the sixth great extinction and what's going on on the planet. So how could you not yeah. look back? Because if you can't, if you don't know where you came from, you've got no idea about where you're going. So looking back on all of that, I find absolutely fascinating, but I don't really do it on a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, you know, I, 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 I listen to a lot of spiritual people and I'm totally interested in, in, the, in the debate, but I don't have any pressing spiritual beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably relate to Buddhists more than I relate to um, anything else. Mm-hmm. and i love, I love the the Buddhist, the Buddhist um, uh, philosophy of right action without being attached to the outcome, and that that is a, a foundation stone of what i 'm doing because yeah. I know the outcome will be terrible yes i 'm not just working on on the on the um, On the nursery, I've got another project that I'm doing in conjunction with some other wonderful people. We were trying to set up a marine reserve outside, off the coast of where I'm sitting now. and I'm only 100 meters away from the water. Uh, Off the coast, we're going to set up a marine reserve. And I think that one of the first places we're going to see the collapse of the biosphere is in the oceans. That's already underway. Yes. Someone's gotta be the last person to set up a marine reserve. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So there's my two challenges at the moment.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm I'm inspired by that, and I'm sure others are, because again, it's not attachment, it's doing the right thing because it needs to be done. And there's a humility, frankly, of you don't know how, you know, I mean What I'm pretty sure of, as you and Guy voice more prophetically and powerfully than almost anyone, or probably anyone, um, you know, major shits coming down. There are consequences that are baked into the system that are so large that that the idea of business as usual is ending. That um, the what I speak, the extinction of Homo Colossus, that is where 20 to 50. You know that each of us uses 20 to 50 times the resources and exudes that much waste. That's that's inevitably going extinct. It has to. That we are in a pattern where, if some remnant of our species survives, we'll be lucky. Um, and yet we have to live while we're living, and so we have to do what we can do to have the highest quality life and healthy relationships, and and continue to be about the work of. Making whatever difference we can at whatever scale we can, um, and uh, it seems to me that you're planting trees, uh, you, that you're uh, being concerned with a, a marine reserve, is exactly in the right spirit. It's it's work that I suspect nourishes your soul, even if there you think there's maybe only a five percent or ten percent or maybe zero point five percent chance. That it will, you know, uh, make a difference into the farther future. It's nonetheless, in my my language, soul-nourishing work.
1: I think it's part of my grief management.
0: Oh, that's very important too. Yes.
1: You know, unless we acknowledge grief, we can't deal with it, and we're a grief-denying culture, just like we're a death-denying culture. No one wants to talk about death. And, and grief is a really uncool subject. You know, people want to talk about the new Pinot Noir on the market. They don't want to talk about <laughs> grief. But only people who can afford the new Pinot Noir on the market are talking about it. You know, that, those things reflect privilege all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I firmly believe that any day now, we're going to have a billion really, really angry young people yeah. on this planet. It's only just dawning on them now, and that's the more privileged ones who have access to the internet, who have good educations, who can have the, the, the privilege of having a bourgeois conversation about these things, whereas they're not fighting and scrubbing around in the bush for worms to eat or, or bats to hit with their slingshots. So I think that's something that we really need to start thinking about and coming up with a strategy about how, how are we going to talk to them and how are we going to mitigate their grief?
0: Mm, mm. That's really great. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, this is just popping to my mind now. This is not a question. I, I think I've asked this once, something like this, but if you were speaking to a young person, how, how would you speak to uh, a younger person now? And then how would you speak to somebody uh, in their senior years now? What would be different?
1: Well, I think what we have to impress upon the young people is that there is no security of tenure on this planet anymore. And there is no security of tenure of this set of living arrangements going on much longer. All civilizations, all previous civilizations collapsed. And there were all sorts of signs to show them. And a lot of it was overreach. And a lot of it was militarism. And and with civilization, you know, a city by by definition is an overreach. It can't function without all those trucks coming every night, bringing all the food in. All that's going to go away really, really soon. So, what I would suggest to young people and to their parents is build resilience. Get used to being resilient, get used to missing a meal, get used to going out. And hunter-gathering and finding one, <laughs> you know. I know a lot of vegans wouldn't like that, but the reality is our species has been hunter-gathering a lot longer than it's been a vegan.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually not aware of any vegan cultures, but uh, uh, no. I, I, I'm reminded of John Michael Greer's book, that's really a collection of some of his better essays on his archdruid report blog over 11 years, collapse now and avoid the rush. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's so much. This gives you an indication of how close we are. There's a, an extraordinary amount of intellectual debate around the coming collapse. Most people, most people who have been anywhere down this rabbit hole are aware that it's, gonna, that it's, uh, it's happening now. Yes, exactly. And what people don't get is the complexity issue. The more complex a society is, the more vulnerable it is, society or civilization. And we there's never been anything remotely like the complexity that we are living with now. I go into the city once a week and I do a shop for food. You know, so you know I get a whole lot of food out of a supermarket that's come from some of it from the other side of the world. And I went to this complex and there'd been a power cut and all the shops were there and all the doors were open and there was no business being transacted because they didn't have the internet. It falls over pretty quickly when you lose the internet.
0: Yes, exactly. Kevin, what's what has, uh, have you found, have you found uh, on the other side of the stages of grief um, what Paul could? Trafer- talks about finding the gift. Like what's opened up for you positively when you allowed yourself to go through the post doom doorway.
1: One of the things it's done for me is it's taken pressure off me. I always wanted to fix everything.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I wanted to fix the nuclear industry. I wanted to tear it down and break it up. And a whole lot of things like that. I, I, I was really focused on, and then I was really disappointed when things went wrong. But now I understand that our predicament is unfixable. We, we, are not, we, don't, we don't have problems. We're in a predicament, and it's, we can't fix what's happening. All we can do is prepare and prepare the ones we love. Mm-hmm. So what, what it's done for me is it's taken that pressure off me and it's made me much more selective about who I spend my time with. I'm only interested in empaths in my life. If people don't have empathy, I don't have time. It's shed, I've shed a lot of deadwood in my acquaintances. You know, now I would look back and say, okay, a lot of those people were actually acquaintances, mm-hmm. not as much friends. But I think the depths of my friendships are deeper because of the nature of the emotional roller coaster, And if you have people around you who get it and you can support them, that's a higher level of true friendship. I, there's been a lot of sacrifices, but there's been a lot of positives, a lot of takeouts for me as well.
0: The, one of the things that I am most grateful for about this particular conversation series is just having these conversations with folks Um, I'm feeling a greater sense of tribe or community among those uh, who really have been paying attention to the science, paying attention to the trends, uh, move through whatever grief, anger, despair, whatever they needed to move through to, um, you know, active engagement with their communities. Um, And it feels to me holy work to use religious language to be about this pro future pro life in a larger sense of life, like biological life um, work and to be able to talk to people that I can grieve with, that I can feel the sadness with, that I can um, look at the, I mean, I I've gotten to where I don't even pay attention to the news once a week. I typically check the news to see what's happened the previous week. You know, I sometimes check collapse.net or Reddit Reddit collapse just to sort of stay aware of, Sort of the bad news with respect to our relationship to the planet but most of the human to human what gets considered news on tv radio and internet i i frankly think is episodic trivia it's it, and i don't i'm not i don't care what various corporations want me to believe and talk about so i just pretty much avoid a lot of that now and i haven't watched television in over 40 years so that was easy to give up
1: oh well, that's i think that's why I am so grateful and impressed with people like Gary Null, Dr. Gary Null, who started the Progressive Radio Network, because what we've got to do is we've got to cut through the chaff and cut through the propaganda. All the corporate media is giving you a spin. You you can see a lot of big corporate media, like even The Guardian now, that are doing a a lot of work on ecology and on the climate crisis. But it's the edited highlights. What you have to do is you have to go to alternative media sources that aren't driven by money, that are driven by organizations and people who are trying to talk truth to power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've mentioned before about your Irish background. I'm, a, I'm an Irish Republican. I have Irish Republican blood cascading through my veins. So, <laughs> I've been that kind of person. I was born that way. My, my name was Kevin because my mother used to, she named me after, be a, named me after an 18-year-old Irish Republican who the British hung. Oh, my God. And his name was Kevin Barry. And my mother used to sing the song of Kevin Barry to me when I was a child. And then when I got older and I went off to Ireland and I was in Belfast in the middle of the war, she was really grumpy with me. <laughs> <laughs> She saw me on, on the TV, on the BBC News, way back in those days, she saw me on the BB News, BBC News once and she rang me in an island and she didn't have the money for an international call in those days, but she called me anyway. And she said, Ireland doesn't need any more martyrs, you know?
0: Yeah, she was scared. Oh, gosh, that makes so <laughs> much sense. Yes. So the last question I want to ask is related to sort of remaining opportunities um, and... Curious, what is your take on what's beyond our control and where we could, where we can still possibly make a difference individually and collectively? In other words, what in your sense is no longer possible and what's still possible?
1: There was was an interesting quote from Jim Bendel. I don't know if you know about Jim Bendel. Yeah,
0: very very much so.
1: But he said that. um, I, can't, I, I haven't got it in front of me, but his it it's, was to paraphrase him. It was something like, "It's important not to just be carrying out actions to make yourself feel better when they're not going to be bringing about any positive change." And I think what people should be doing is concentrating on what fulfills them, and and don't you know the the old the old. Um, the old philosophy that people had was they send their children to school, get a good education, look for a career path, find a good career, have a safe, you know, have a, a profitable working life and then have a good, comfortable retirement. None of that applies anymore. Right. All of all that we know could fall over at any moment. So I think what people should do is look inside themselves. Find out what's important to them. Look inside their friends and find out which ones of them do they really gel with on a, on a, on a soulful level. And then, and then follow your dream. If you want to do art, do it now. If you want to learn a musical instrument, do it now. Don't wait. I, I would throw off those shackles of the old establishment. We should get the fuck on with it, with what, with what spins their crank, which, what, what fulfills them. And you can do a whole lot of those things in a community in a community environment where you can build communities. If you're into gardening, get the local kids over and get them gardening with you. Do, if you're a guitarist, play guitar with other people and give them that joy of being able to sit down and sit around a fire and listen to someone play a guitar. These are the really simple little things that we've sort of lost because of the internet. You can listen to you can listen to um, the best guitarists in the world, but your next door neighbor's a pretty good guitarist as well, <laughs> and you can have a good time with her or him. Yeah. And I think that's what people should do do is follow their hearts more.
0: Wow, what a wonderful crescendo! Because I, I I'm reminded of that conversation that I had with Sean Chamberlain. Um, and his editing of of David Fleming's Lean Logic and really bringing that to the fore. And what David Fleming's work was all about was rebuilding local um, culture in the very best sense. And we don't have to wait for that. In fact, if we wait, it may be too late. Uh, So now is the time to do that.
1: I firmly believe that there's never been a time in history when it's more important to be a member of a tribe. To be a member of a tribe, you have to open your heart and you have to find other people who who you can trust to come into your heart and will trust you to do the same. And a lot of people, you know, one of the extraordinary things about our modern civilization is that millions of people live in cities and they're almost all lonely. They're surrounded by people but they're lonely. Yes. I think it's time a really important time to reach out and find your tribe. And doing it online is all well and good, but that only, that's only goes so far. Yeah. There is nothing better than sharing a meal with someone. And especially if you've grown that food and cooked that meal. Amen. It doesn't get any better than that. So I think if people could just simplify their lives, follow their heart, open up to the good people and cut the dead wood free.
0: That's awesome, Kevin. Thank you. That's, that's solid coaching that aligns completely with my own values and sense of reality.
1: Well, you know, I didn't used to have this level of empathy. This is something that I've grown into. I was always sensitive and I was always concerned about other people, but not to the extent I am now. I'm much more sensitised by this knowledge, mm-hmm. and I find that I sincerely hope it's made me a better person. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm less interested and in, in less less self-centred. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if, if if anyone could take anything out of this discussion, I think that it's it's not all doom and gloom. There can be a lot of good come out of having these conversations. Yeah. And, and, and accepting the predicament. You know, one of the things that Guy and I are, are often accused of is giving up. Because we accept the severity of the crisis. Yes. No one who looks at my life or Guy McPherson's life can say we've given up. Right. We're just trying to fit and, and operate within the paradigm that we see. Not, not to any fictional one or anyone in the rear vision mirror. Look
0: yes. forward. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, blessings on your work, and I look forward to uh, staying in communication.
1: Thanks a lot. Great. It was thank a you. pleasure. It was a pleasure chatting to you. If you ever want to um, call a mate and have a glass of wine or a beer with him, give us a call.
0: For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.